Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I'm reading a book uh, right now that I'm enjoying very much. It's called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, some of you might know that that title might startle you a little bit because you don't know of Christopher Hitchens as a man who had faith. Uh, he was kind of a notorious atheist and loved to attack the Christian faith at every opportunity. Um, he got cancer, died in 2011, and <clears throat> apparently developed some friendships with Christians near the end of his life, and one of those persons was named Larry Taunton, and he's the author of this book. And Larry, um, in the book, kind of gives his assessment of Hitchens and where he was spiritually and tells a little bit about some of the conversations that he had with Hitchens. And it turns out that he was a little more interested in Christianity and spiritual things than he was uh, willing to let on. But there's a place in the beginning of the book where Christopher Hitchens, after he had been diagnosed with cancer, asks Larry Taunton, a question, and the question is this. He says, Larry, why do you think I don't believe? And Larry Taunton responded, do you really want to know? Because you might not like the answer. And Hitchens says, yes, I do want to know. Now, sadly, at that point in the book, Taunton doesn't give the answer that he gave to, Larry, uh, to Christopher Hitchens. And I'm still reading the book to find out what that answer is, so I can't share it with you. I'll let you know as soon as I get there, assuming that, that he tells us in, in the book. But we do have an answer to that question given to us in the Scriptures. And maybe that's a question that you have asked yourself. Why is it that certain people reject the gospel? Why, why do people not believe in Jesus when Jesus is presented to them? Uh, you might have people very close to you in your life, maybe a parent or a son or a daughter or <clears throat> brother, sister, roommate, boss, co-worker, spouse, and they've heard the gospel, you've told them the gospel, and they won't take it. And you've asked yourself, what, why won't they believe? Maybe you've asked that question about the culture in which we live. We live in a culture, don't we, that is increasingly hostile to Christian things. Uh, unbelief is rampant, even to the point of mocking Jesus and the gospel that we believe. And maybe you've asked, why, why do people reject the gospel like they do? Why do so few people, why is it that it seems more people than not reject the gospel? There are so few people who do receive the gospel. Why is that? And maybe this is a question you're asking yourself about yourself. Maybe you're thinking, why can't I believe the gospel? Why can't I believe? And I would ask to you the same question that Larry Tom asked to Christopher Hitchens. Do you really want to know the answer? Because you might not like it, but it is the answer that the Scriptures give to us here in Romans 10. And that's what I want to explain to you today from this passage as we continue to go through the book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. We're going through this book one passage at a time. We've reached verses 5 through 21 of chapter 10, <clears throat> and you might remember that the context of this passage is that Paul is seeking to answer the question of why the Jews didn't believe the gospel, because Jesus was presented to the Jews, and 
Most of them rejected the gospel, while so many Gentiles believed the gospel, and that's what Paul is working through in chapters 9 and 10 and even into chapter 11. And so that's the context, very relevant to the question that we're asking today. So please stand now for the reading of God's Word, Romans 10, verses 5 through 21. Hear the word of God. Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God, we look to you to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, and to receive your word as it goes forth now in the power of your spirit. Bless these people with your word, I ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Three statements that I'm going to make here that's going to lead up to explaining the answer that Paul gives to this question of why people reject the gospel. And the first one is this. The gospel is easily understood. At one level, the gospel is a very easy thing. It is not a complex thing. It's not obscure. It's not cryptic. It's not inaccessible. Now, certainly we can go deep into the teaching of the gospel and get to some things that are complicated under the surface. But on the surface, the gospel is really a pretty simple thing. And it won't do to say that one reason that I don't believe in the gospel is because it's too complicated and it's too hard to understand and I've got too much to do to try to get right with God and there's too much required of me. That's not an adequate response. 
And that's what Paul kind of tells us about here in these verses. So in verse 6, for instance, he says this. He's talking about the one, starting with verse 5, who by faith is trusting in Christ and not in the law. And for that person, he says in verse 6, that the righteousness based on faith doesn't have to say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. I think what Paul is saying here is that if you're thinking about how to get right with God, you don't have to think about how is it that I can get up into heaven to get to God myself? How can I enter into the heavens to reach God? How can I search out the expanse of the universe to find out where God is? That's the only way I can know Him is if I make that effort to pursue Him and find Him. Some people might think that way. That sounds difficult to me. Uh, maybe you know um, about uh, a guy named Yuri Gagarin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, the Russian cosmonaut who was the first person in a manned space flight in 1961. And he got up into space, and apparently when he came back down, he said, you know, I got up there and I didn't find God. I didn't see him up there anywhere. <laughs> You know, therefore, he doesn't exist because I didn't see him. Now, that dis- quote has been disputed. Some people say somebody else said it, but it still il- illustrates the point. You know, that, that's not something that we have to do. We're not responsible for searching out the universe to find God. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in verse 6. And then he kind of gives the other side of the coin here in verse 7. And he says, you also don't have to say who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So to find God or to find a relationship with Him, you don't have to go the other way either. You don't have to descend into the realm of the dead. You don't have to conduct a seance to bring people back from the dead. You don't have to have a near-death experience to enter into this other spiritual world to find out who God is. And you certainly don't have to die yourself to pay the price for your own sins. Why don't you have to do that? Why is God not requiring that of us? It's because Christ has already come down out of heaven. He's not expecting you to go up to get him. He's come down to get you. And he has come down to do something. He has come down to lay down his life to pay the penalty for your sins. And he has already been risen from the dead, out of the grave, out of the abyss. You don't have to search for him there any longer. He's resurrected from the dead. He lives and he is near and close to each one of us, as our call to worship has said. Jesus is accessible. He's nearby. He's close. He's not distant and remote. It's not that hard, is what Paul is saying. And I heard uh, this quote this week, that Christianity is the only religion where the verdict comes before the performance. That good news. The verdict of justification and right relationship with God comes before we do anything to try to make ourselves right with God. That's what separates the gospel from all other religions. And so in verse 8, Paul kind of sums this up. What does it say then? He's quoting Deuteronomy 30 here, and you'll see repeated quotes from the Old Testament. I think there's seven quotes from the Old Testament here in chapter 10 from Paul. And here's one in verse 8. He says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word is near. So 
The gospel is nearby. God is nearby. He's not distant from us, but this still begs the question of what is the gospel? Why do people reject the gospel? Well, what is it? That's an important question to ask, and we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit this morning. What is the gospel? You'll get a number of different answers to that question uh, in various churches and talking to different Christians. How would you define it? What is it? Is the gospel the fact that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Is that the gospel? Is the gospel the fact that God accepts you just the way you are? Is the gospel the idea that God is the God of second chances? Is the gospel the declaration that God wants to give you your best life now? Are these things the gospel? I mean, there might be some truth in those statements, but none of those statements that I have said is the gospel. None of those is the gospel. The God is a God of love. The God helps those who help themselves. We hear all these statements that are attributed to Christianity. People say, yeah, I believe there's a God of love, and I believe that God gives us second chances, and they think that's the gospel. It's not. Lots of religions, lots of worldviews will hold to that. What Paul gives us here in verses 9 and 10 is a clear definition of what the gospel is. And there's two things to notice here um, that are essential components to the gospel. And the first is who Jesus is. If you look at verse 9, chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, first of all, this says something about who Jesus is. Now, uh, notice here where he says Jesus is Lord. That's actually a very instructive and helpful comment because um, there's something that was called the Septuagint at the time of Paul's writing. That was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. People in Paul's day who wanted to read the Old Testament couldn't read it because it was written in Hebrew, and so it was translated into Greek. So the Old Testament that the New Testament writers and the apostles and disciples used was a New Testament, uh, excuse me, an Old Testament written in Greek. And the Greek translation of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament is a Greek word called kurios, which means Lord. And what Paul is doing here in verse 9, when he says Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kyrios, what he's doing is taking the word that in the Septuagint was applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus and saying that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus is God. That simple little phrase there, Jesus is Lord, is what Paul is declaring. And so he seems to be saying here that if you confess that, that's a major component in being saved and being a Christian, acknowledging that Jesus is God, who Jesus is. But we also see in this passage something about what Jesus did. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So to be raised from the dead, you have to have died. So you must believe that Jesus has died Now, Paul doesn't say anything here about why Jesus died, nothing here about sins, so 
Paul is not exhaustively explaining the gospel to us here, but we can go to another place in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, where Paul also gives us a short synopsis of the gospel. And he says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul is declaring to us, here's something that you need to believe, that Jesus, not only something about who Jesus is, but also about what Jesus did. He died for sins and is risen from the dead. And your part then, in response to that gospel, is also here in verses 9 and 10. He talks about confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So this is something that you must believe, but it's also something that you must be willing to confess. Now, I don't think Paul means that this is some kind of magical incantation here, like saying abracadabra to open up a door into the land of Narnia or something like that. It's not a magical formulation that you have to recite in a particular way to be saved. All Paul is saying here is that if you believe something in your heart, you ought to be willing to say it with your mouth. I mean, just like a a marriage, any woman would be right to doubt a husband who didn't want to declare his love for her before others. We have wedding ceremonies, so couples can stand before each other and others and declare, I do, I love you, I take you. They're confessing with their mouths what they believe in their hearts, and that's what Paul is telling us is essential for being saved. So what we have here in verses 9 and 10 is just the basic minimum content of what is required to be a Christian. It's really very simple. You don't have to be a Presbyterian to be a Christian. You don't have to sign on the dotted line for everything we believe and do here at New Life. You don't have to believe, for instance, in our particular position on the doctrine of election that has been presented here from chapter 9. You don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. You don't have to be a Republican in order to be a Christian. It's really very simple. To be a Christian, you need to simply believe that Jesus is God come from heaven into our earth to lay down his life on the cross, dying, paying the penalty for sins, and then he is resurrected from the dead, returning to the right hand of the Father. It's really that simple. Jesus is God. He came. He died. He's raised from the dead, and he lives. That's it. That, that's really it. Now, are there other things that come along with that as you grow as a Christian? Sure. But if you're sitting here thinking, I don't know if I want to be a Christian because I just can't grasp all these things they talk about at New Life and all these doctrines that Bob is talking about on Sunday morning, I don't understand it all. All you've got to understand is that you're a sinner. God came in Jesus. He died for you, and he's risen from the dead. Will you take that? Will you believe that? It's, it's, it's just that simple. And so when people reject the gospel, I I don't think it can be at its root the fact that it's too complicated and I can't understand it. What Paul is saying here is it's simple. It's easily understood. But the second statement I want to make is that the gospel is widely available as well. 
the gospel is widely available. Because I can hear some people maybe saying, you know, the gospel is for other people, but it's not for me. Because I'm different than church people. Or if you're from another country, maybe, you think the gospel is just for Westerners or it's just for Americans, but, but it's not for me. Or maybe you have a you know, checkered past. You've done some things that you're really ashamed of. You've done things in your life that church people don't do, and you just think the gospel's for church people, but not me. I had an abortion. How could the gospel be for me? I struggle with same-sex attraction. How could the gospel be for me? There's all kinds of ideas that people could come up with, reasons not to accept the gospel, thinking that it's not for everybody, that it's only for a certain group of people. But if you look in verses 11 through 13, Paul dispels that notion right away. Look what he says. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see those universal statements? Everyone who believes. There is no distinction. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. There's no boundaries. There's no restrictions. There's no limitations here on who can come to Jesus and be saved. And so this is something that we have to think about in balance with what we learned in chapter 9 about election, about this idea that God chooses some from before the foundation of the world. And some people hear that and they think, well, I don't know if I'm elect or not, so maybe I shouldn't come to Christ. But Paul is very clear here. It's like this is the very important balance to that doctrine where he is giving a universal call to anybody who will come. The gospel is for anybody who will call on Jesus to be saved. So it won't do to say, well, you know, I'm going to reject Jesus because it isn't for me. Now, in verses 14 to 17, we get into an interesting question, which is this. What about those who haven't heard? Because it is true that the gospel has not been proclaimed to everybody in the entire world. Not everybody in Paul's day had heard it. Not everybody in our day has heard it. And so what Paul says here in verses 14 through 16 is, you know, you must believe in the gospel to be saved, but in order to believe, you must hear the gospel. And in order to hear the gospel, somebody must go to you and declare the gospel to you. And so Paul is making a very strong case for the importance of missionaries and evangelists. And he's making, an, an, I think, a strong case for the fact that people have to hear the gospel and respond to it and be saved. But you know, I'm not going to unpack this right now. And the reason why is because last year, um, I did a sermon from these passages, or verses, verses 14 through 16, answering that very question, what about those who've never heard? What happens to those who have never heard? And so rather than repeat all that right now, uh, we're going to kind of skip over these few verses. But you can go to our website and hear that sermon. Um, Jamie indicated that she's going to send a Facebook post and a Twitter uh, post later in the week, giving the link to that message if you're interested in that, because it's a question that people very often ask, what happens to those who have never heard? And so I recommend that to you if, if you're interested. 
But we're going to skip down to verse 18, and I want you to see here how Paul's point just supports the argument that I'm making. Look at verse 18. Because Paul says, but I ask, have they not heard? Remember, he's talking about the Jews now. Why do the Jews not believe? Why have they rejected the gospel? In verse 18, he's considering that question. Maybe they haven't heard, and maybe that's why. But then he says, indeed they have. They have heard. And what he does there in verse 18 is he quotes Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Psalm 19 is about something we call general revelation. That's the idea that God's existence is clearly known through the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God. Paul made that point in Romans 1. It's also made in Psalm 19 that Paul quotes here in verse 18. And so it's a little bit strange that Paul would use a psalm about general revelation to talk about special revelation, because special revelation is the gospel being proclaimed to people in the earth. There's a little bit of a difference there. General revelation, God's existence shown to every person. Special revelation is the gospel going to only the people whom missionaries are able to reach in God's providence. So there's a difference there. And so why is Paul using Psalm 19 about general revelation to talk about special revelation? And I think the answer to that is simply this. I think what Paul is saying here is that just as God's existence has been so widely known through general revelation, it's the case now that Jesus has come and has risen from the dead and has sent out apostles into the world, that the gospel is now going forth into the world in a generous and prolific and universal way that's actually pretty similar to general revelation. I don't think he's saying that everybody has heard the gospel here, but he's saying that we... In Paul's day, he's saying we've lived in a time now where the gospel is more widely available than it's ever been before. His point is that the Jews have heard the gospel. People have been sent out from the church preaching the gospel. Paul knows lots of Jews. He's seen them hear the gospel. He's preached the gospel to them. He knows they've heard it. And Paul even said this in Colossians 1. He says, you have heard before in the world of the truth. In the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So Paul is seeing the gospel is now going forth into the world in an unprecedented way. And he was saying that back in the first century. So if that was true then, how much more true is it now? Do you understand how widely accessible and available the gospel is? Do you know what a blessing it is that you have heard the gospel? Have you ever stopped to count the number of times you've heard the gospel? When was the first time you heard the gospel? Some of you heard the gospel for the first time from your parents, probably when you were three, four, five years old. Some of you heard it in a Sunday school class when you were a kid many years ago. Some of you heard the gospel from a crew a staff person. Some of you have heard the gospel from an evangelist or hearing a sermon in a church. But most likely, everybody sitting in here has heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. 
You've probably heard the gospel thousands of times. If, if there's somebody here who's not a Christian and you're just saying, you know, I just haven't had the opportunity to hear the gospel like other people have, I just don't think that excuse is going to work. <laughs> think of all the, the churches that are being planted, all the churches that exist in this country and in the West in general. Now, again, I know it's not that way in all other places of the world, but Paul's point here is the Jews have heard the gospel. The Jews, the religious people, I'm speaking to the church here. You guys are in the same category as the Jews. You've heard it. Think of all the books that have been written, all the conferences that are put on, all the seminars that are put on, all the radio stations, all the TV stations through which the gospel is proclaimed over and over and over again. The gospel is widely available and really can't be the reason for people rejecting Jesus. Last point. Finally, we're getting to our, our answer here. Why do people reject the gospel? Because in its very essence and to the natural person, the gospel is offensive at its very core. It's offensive. Let's look at verse 19. 19. Paul asks another question here. He says, did Israel not understand? Maybe that's a reason why they rejected the gospel. We've already kind of dealt with that in the first point of this sermon. But here's the answer that Paul gives. He says, did Israel not understand? Well, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, first of all, which says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This is a prophecy in Deuteronomy about the Gentiles who are going to come to faith in Christ and make the Jews angry. That word or that phrase, foolish nation, that's referring to Gentiles, a nation with no understanding. And then in verse 20, Paul quotes Isaiah 65 and says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, this is a prophecy about the Gentiles who will come to faith, prophesied in Isaiah these Gentiles who had no interest in God, didn't pursue God or seek God, nonetheless, they became God's children because they received the gospel. What Paul is saying here is the Gentiles had none of the advantages or blessings that the Jews had. They didn't have the law and the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the patriarchs and the covenants. The Gentiles didn't have any of that stuff. And yet when they heard the gospel, they believed it. So if the Gentiles, who had none of the blessings that the Jews did, if they believed, they must have understood. But the Jews have rejected the gospel. So it's not because they don't understand. If the Gentiles understood, certainly the Jews should understand. That's what Paul's saying. So he dispels that. That's not the reason that the Jews have rejected the gospel. Finally, verse 21, we get there. Here's the answer. Why do they not believe? Of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What he's saying here is that the problem is, here's the reason why the Jews have rejected the gospel. They're defiant, proud, self-sufficient, stubborn, morally corrupt people. That's why they reject the gospel. 
It's a moral problem. It's a heart problem. It's not primarily an intellectual problem. You'll hear people reject the gospel all the time because, well, there's all these contradictions in the Bible, and you're saying Jesus is the only way. I can't stand that. What about all those holy wars in the Old Testament? And don't Christians support slavery? And they come out with one answer after another, and it's all a smokescreen to cover up the fact that they don't want to believe. They don't want to admit that they're sinners helpless in the sight of God who needs something as serious as the shed blood of the Son of God to cover their sins. They don't want to acknowledge that there is someone called Jesus who is king of the universe and to whom they owe full and total submission and obedience of their entire lives. To a lot of people, that's offensive. They don't want it. They've already convinced themselves they're not going to believe. They don't like it. They don't like Jesus. It's like Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that are the problem. It's the parts that I do understand. That's what I don't like. I get it very clearly, Mark Twain says, and I don't like it. I want to give you some examples of this. Um, Aldous Huxley, Aldous Huxley, famous British writer, atheist, said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. In other words, he's saying, it's not really an issue, it's not an intellectual problem, quite frankly, <laughs> trying to figure out the nature of the world. That's not really the issue. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. That's what the atheist is, the atheist heart is really after. I, I just, I, I want to live my life the way I want. I don't want a God telling me what to do. Thomas Nagel, philosopher, something very similar. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. You have to at least appreciate this man's honesty. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live for God. I don't want to obey to God. I don't want to be accountable to God. I want to do what I want to do. And that could be the case for some of you today. I'm not going to receive that Jesus because I got sins in my life that I love too much and I am not giving them up. And I heard somebody say this recently. You know, if somebody comes to you, particularly someone who's been a Christian maybe all their lives, and then they come to you and they start saying, you know, I'm not so sure about this Christianity stuff anymore. I've got all these questions now. You know, what about the problem of evil? And what about the contradictions in the Bible? What are these things? You know, I'm just not so sure about this anymore. Here's a good question to ask that person. Who are you sleeping with? How much pornography have you been watching? How much pot have you been smoking? Because here's what happens. People, they, in their conjuring nature and the stubbornness of their heart, they enter into sinful lifestyles, and the way they live their lives begins to affect what they're willing to believe. And that's what Paul is saying here. The Jews had every opportunity. The Jews was clearly made available to them. The gospel was clearly understood. They heard it, but they didn't want it. 
because they didn't want to repent of their desire to earn their salvation by themselves. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Not because they weren't intellectually convinced, because their works, their lifestyles were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. That's why people don't believe. That's why people reject the gospel. So how do we battle this? How do we battle this as we bring this to a close? Verse 17, I skipped over, but I think here's the answer. How do we battle unbelief? Because let's just admit it, we're all susceptible to unbelief. All of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, we're all susceptible to unbelief. And so verse 17 says, faith, belief, we could say, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the word of God joined with God's spirit that generates faith in us in you and in me. That's, that's how it happens. It's the Word of God. You need the Word of God in your life constantly. Constantly. How have you, how have, have you been feasting on God's Word lately, friends, or have you kind of gotten away from that? Have you been drifting from reading the Bible on a regular basis privately? Drift from the Word of God, and you will drift into unbelief. Almost certain to happen. What's your time like in God's Word? I remember when I went on a mountain bike trip um, years ago out in Utah, and the tour guide said, here's what you need to do. You need to drink water all the time. Don't wait until you're hot to drink water. Don't wait till you get to the big hill to drink water. Just as soon as we got on our bikes to ride out of town, he said, start drinking water. Drink it constantly, over and over again, so that you'll be ready when you have to go uphill. The Word of God is the same way. You've got to drink it all the time. So you can be ready for the uphill climbs and the temptation that you're going to have to disbelieve. That's one of the reasons why we preach expositorily here at New Life. That's why we go through these difficult passages. Maybe some of you are thinking, why is he always uncovering these obscure passages in the Bible that I've never seen before? Because we believe that faith comes from hearing God's Word in every bit of it, all parts of it. You need that, I need that. And you got to be here on Sunday mornings in order to hear that also. So making Sunday morning worship attendance, private Bible reading, very important to fight unbelief. But let me just share with you again this, this very last verse, and, and just remember this, wherever you are in this situation, there's this beautiful image in verse 21. Of Israel, he says... <clears throat> All day long I have held out my hands. Keep that image in your mind. That there is a God who is standing there like this. And he's, he's holding out his hands to you. He's reaching out and he's saying, he's saying, come, come to me. Come, 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 come to me. Trust me. Come. And he's holding out his hands all day long while you're running from him and disbelieving disbelieving him and acting like he doesn't exist he's still there with his hands held out and he says I will not drive away any who come to me stop disbelieving and believe
God in heaven, we acknowledge our unbelief, our tendency to unbelief. We, we, it's just true of us in the sickness of our fallen condition. And so, Lord God, help our unbelief and give us the grace to trust you and your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.